Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.27, The Massachusetts Body of Liberties. Today we are going to begin a two-episode dive into the political situation that would develop throughout New England through the 1630s and 40s. Next week, we are going to take a brief look at Rhode Island and then spend the majority of the episode in Connecticut learning what we need to know about the fundamental order. However, that is all in two weeks, and for today, we are going to spend our time with Massachusetts and Plymouth. Last week should have provided some clues about where the politics are at the moment in Massachusetts. As we have seen, the order of the day for the Bay Colony was to banish those whose religious beliefs fell outside the narrow window that Winthrop and the other leaders of the colony had established. As we have talked about many times, the religious order of the day in Massachusetts and the political order were largely synonymous with one another. If you run afoul of one, it is a pretty good guess that you have now run afoul of the other. We will spend today looking at just what that means and how the political systems will develop over the next decade. Plymouth, on the other hand, has not been a major part of our story for some time now. Plymouth might have preceded the Bay Colony by a decade, however, from the moment that the Bay Colony got going, it became the epicenter of New England. The colonists in Plymouth don't appear to be terribly upset by this. The colonists in Plymouth were plenty happy doing their own thing. However, with that being said, time does not stop, even for the pilgrims. So we will head back to Plymouth today and check in with our old friends there and see how the politics of Plymouth have now changed. We have spent some time already talking about the politics of the day in Massachusetts. So before we get into where things are going, let's take a step back and see where we have been. It is tempting to look at Massachusetts as being a democracy. After all, the original charter allowed church members to vote in the colonial leadership. While nice that the freemen in the colony had a voice and were able to vote, their political role in society came to a hard stop immediately after casting that vote. As soon as the new governor and assistants were selected, what you were left with was basically a dictatorship. As we saw during the episode on John Winthrop, he personally had virtually no interest in running a democratic society. While he understood the importance of expanding the rights of the freemen to allow the ability to vote for their leadership, he was more than content that the leadership should then carry on with its near-dictatorial powers. In the view of men like Winthrop, a top-down approach was the way that politics should flow. At the same time, as we have looked at Massachusetts throughout the 1630s, we have seen time and time again the importance of the church to that society. Winthrop, who spent so much time in the driver's seat of the colony, was obsessed with maintaining his vision of Massachusetts as being the city upon the hill. When anybody challenged that way of life, Winthrop was quick to purge that influence out of the colony. We saw this with Roger Williams, John Wheelwright, and Anne Hutchinson. Living in a society of this nature is going to have a big impact on the politics of those who are going to be living in that colony. Winthrop had over the years been willing to give some concessions towards the population. For instance, he agreed in 1634 to give the freemen of the colony more of a say in matters of taxation and towards land policies. However, despite this, make no mistake that Winthrop closely guarded the reins of power. After all, if it was God that the leadership derived their power from, Who was the rabble to question that authority? What set the Massachusetts Bay Company apart from any of the other colonies that came before it was that decision by its original founders to remove the company itself from London and place it right there firmly on the ground in Massachusetts. The general court had then decided that they would meet four times a year to make the laws. The general court, therefore, would become the lowest rung on an early representative form of government. 
The general court consisted of the freemen in the colony, and it was those freemen who we had previously discussed that had a right to vote for colonial leadership. The selection to the general court worked in the following way then. The freemen would select the assistants, the assistants would then select the governor and the deputy governor. It is also important to know that during this same time, the Massachusetts government lacked any kind of an independent judicial branch. The legal system in the colony was largely based on biblical law, which is unsurprising considering that the group had placed the church at the top of the colony. That being said, I don't want to give the wrong idea and make you think that early Massachusetts was a theocracy. It wasn't any more a theocracy than it was a democracy. This is because the clergy was not involved directly in running the government, which does in fact prevent this from being a theocracy. The system did, to be fair, have elements of both types of systems. Freeman at least did have voting rights, and the legal system was based essentially on the Ten Commandments. However, it would be better to view the Massachusetts Bay Company as having a form of government that is more parliamentary in nature, run by guys who had very deep connections to the church. The colony was functioning based on their experience back in England. With so much of the leadership involved in local leadership back in England, and recall that Winthrop himself had been a magistrate, that is what the men knew, and it is what they were going to model things after. Per the charter, the general court was in charge of creating the laws, whereas the governor was in charge of the routine business of the colony. During the October 1630 meeting, Winthrop and the company modified the charter to transfer powers of making laws from the general court and instead gave that power to the governor and the assistants. Considering that the majority of the population in Massachusetts had come over during the Great Migration years, it follows that amongst the biggest fears within the political structure of the colony was that of tyranny. The Puritans in Massachusetts had a real fear of arbitrary government. The Puritans felt that if the government was allowed to become arbitrary in nature, it would inevitably lead to tyranny. Winthrop, writing in 1644, gave the following definition for us. Arbitrary government is where people have men set over them without their choice of allowance, who have power to govern them and judge their cause without a rule. God only has this prerogative, whose sovereignty is absolute, and whose will is a perfect rule. And reason itself, so as for man to usurp such authority, is tyranny and impropriety. Where the people have liberty to admit or reject their governors, and to require the rule by which they shall be governed and judged, this is not an arbitrary government. Well, this was written more than a decade after the founding of the Bay Colony, when Winthrop himself was on trial for abuse of power, it is a theme that is ever-present throughout the entire history of that colony. There was always a concern with the limits of government. This logically follows as well. Remember that the people making up the population of Massachusetts were the Puritans who had been chased from England during the reign of Charles I. This was a group that had been on the front lines of actual persecution. They had a laundry list of complaints of what they had viewed as the arbitrary rule of Charles I back in England. Therefore, now that they are in Massachusetts, essentially operating as they pleased, there remains a constant vigilance against the growing power of the colonial government. Well before Winthrop wrote about the risk of arbitrary government, this had been a constant problem within the colony. With power in Massachusetts becoming increasingly centralized, it took very little time for controversies to come up regarding the government. The first bump in the road comes in 1632, when colonists expressed their displeasure at the government, forcing towns to pay contributions towards the governance of the colony. For them, this was all too much like what they had left back in England, and they were going to make their position known. The protests were not without basis. There was no authority under the charter for the government to issue what amounts essentially to taxes. Now, ultimately, in this situation, the decision was made to expand the representation of the government. 
to ensure that all the towns had representation before the general court, the decision was made, much to the chagrin of John Winthrop, that each town should send two representatives to the general court back in Boston. The question therefore becomes, why expand the political representation system at all? What was so special about taxes? One of the things that was held very dear by the colonists were their rights under the Magna Carta. And under the Magna Carta, it established that they had the rights to be represented when it came to matters of taxation. We are going to see time and time again throughout this podcast that taxation is going to be a particularly sore subject. In fact, when we get to the American Revolution, we will once again see that one of the big complaints is that England is attempting to pass taxes on the colonists that they did not consent to. And that is where the theme of taxation without representation would form. When this first comes up in 1632, it is only on matters of taxation and land distribution that the representatives would have a vote on. Two years later, this would further expand to representation on all matters. Although this is a move towards diversifying the political structure, keep in mind that the actual body politic those men who could vote, were still limited to the freemen who were limited to members of the Puritan church. So, I mean, yeah, everybody wanted more diversity in politics, but it isn't as though anybody was going to go too nuts here. At this point, nobody was really suggesting giving a voice to those outside of the church. By having each town send representatives, it would help account for the regional distance and differences between Boston and the more rural areas. It also marks another step on the march towards a representative government as we know it, despite it being born out of necessity more than any enlightened ideals. The government was also forced to return the right to elect the governor to the freemen of the colony, as opposed to keeping it held solely within the hands of the elected assistants. By the middle part of the 1630s, we have seen the government become extremely centralized before pushback caused the government itself to become more diversified. The voting base itself, however, would, for the moment at least, remain limited to the members of the church, meaning that the system would still be in the hands of a limited few. It is under this backdrop that the government would have to deal with the dissension of Williams, Wheelwright, and Hutchinson. And you can really see from this, despite me talking today about how the government really did become less centralized in the years after it first forms, that the power of the government is still concentrated enough within the colony that people like John Winthrop could purge dissenters with little objection or really anything that resembled due process. During this era, no legal document coming out of Massachusetts would be more influential than the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. During the first decade of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, law was a shockingly simple affair. When a legal case came up, Winthrop, or the sitting governor of the moment, would serve essentially as the finder of fact, along with the other magistrates. This justice system should not really come as too much of a surprise, as we've already seen how it operates on people like Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson. The system of laws that Winthrop advocated for was simple because it lacked anything even resembling due process. Winthrop was an opponent to the idea of a codified system of laws, as he believed that would take away much of the power of the magistrates to administer justice fairly. This really isn't an entirely unfair argument by Winthrop. It can be hard to recall at times that Massachusetts, in so many ways, is still a very young colony. Life is hard. By allowing the magistrates more power over the implementation of laws, Winthrop believed that it would give them better leeway to consider the circumstances surrounding the underlying offense, thus giving more of a fair and compassionate system. 
Winthrop believed that a system of codified laws was likely to be inflexible and the realistic circumstances on the ground in Massachusetts would be ignored. As tempting as it is to view this as Winthrop attempting to hoard power in himself, I don't think that that's really true in this case. Winthrop had been a magistrate. He had cut his teeth in the common law systems of England. Winthrop would have viewed precedent as the driving force of laws, not statutes. Winthrop viewed the law as something that was built through customs, history, and rulings. Coming up with a code of laws did nothing more than hinder the fair administration of justice. On the other hand, there remained a great fear of arbitrary government in Massachusetts, and Winthrop seldom did much to make anybody feel better about that. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, arbitrary government was not a small concern for the Puritans. It had been so at the heart of why they had left England and come to New England to begin with. They had personally suffered through what they had felt to be arbitrary government and persecution at the hands of Charles I and William Laud. They were anxious to prevent the same thing from developing in their new homes. There had been several prior attempts to form a codified legal system. In 1635, the General Court had appointed a committee to work towards the creation of a legal code. The group was made up of four members, including William Dudley and John Winthrop, amongst the others. Winthrop, finding himself on a committee trying to do something that he absolutely hated the idea of, did a truly masterful job at stalling and basically making sure that any efforts were dead on arrival. Another attempt was made in 1638, and again, it met the exact same results. Once again, in 1640, there was another attempt to create a legal code, this time with Nathaniel Ward leading the drafting. Nathaniel Ward was born in 1578 Suffolk. A lawyer by trade, Ward would emigrate to Massachusetts in 1634 after finding him in the crosshairs of, guess who, William Laud for his Puritan beliefs. Upon arrival, Ward would spend his first two years in Massachusetts as a minister. However, by the time that 1640 rolled around, Ward would again be given an opportunity to put his lawyer hat back on, as he was tasked with drafting a law code in Massachusetts. Unlike the previous attempts, this attempt at creating a codified legal code would prove to be successful. Partially helped along by the fact that Winthrop was not the governor at the time, the resulting code became known as the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. After months of debates and repeated attempts by Winthrop to convince the general court that such a codification of laws was against the common law tradition, in May of 1641, the Body of Liberties was adopted. This was the first legal code in the history of New England. The Massachusetts Body of Liberties represented the first real attempt in New England to come up with a matter to more fairly administer the colony. The Body of Liberties is a critical document for several reasons. Notably, so many of the ideals set out in this law code are things that would appear again some 150 years later when it came time to draft the Bill of Rights. Now, as I have done so many times in the past, I am going to warn all of you from reading too much into the influence of the Body of Liberties. It is always tempting to attempt to draw a direct line between some of these early writings in American history and link them to the founding documents of the United States. The influence of the Body of Liberties can, in fact, be seen in the United States Bill of Rights. However, there are still many things in the Body of Liberties that would seem abhorrent to the founders a century and a half later. This is therefore not an early version of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Rather, it is one of many documents that will ultimately prove influential in the product that will be produced. The Body of Liberties itself contains 98 new laws and regulations for the Massachusetts colony. The very first thing that one notices when looking at the Body of Liberties is the separation of church and state is not an aspect of the work. The document immediately grounds itself in religion and ties itself directly into the church. 
none of this is really a shocking revelation either. We are still hanging out in 1641. Everybody in Massachusetts is still looking at Rhode Island with Roger Williams, thinking that they are all crazy for suggesting a separation between the church and the state. Beyond this, however, the true nature of the document quickly becomes apparent. Whereas the legal system prior to this had basically been inquisitorial in nature, typically with men like Winthrop leading the way, this lays down the basic requirements for the introduction of due process into legal proceedings. I'm going to spend the next little bit covering some of the more notable portions of the Body of Liberties. However, I would really encourage you guys to go and actually read it for yourself. It's not terribly long, and the Massachusetts State website has a copy of the document up there for you. If you head on over to my website, and for those of you who still haven't found it, the website is at www.uspoliticalpodcast.com, I have gone ahead and included a link for you. The Body of Liberties borrows rather heavily from the Magna Carta, which it uses as its foundation. I spoke a moment ago about how due process is one of the biggest things to come out of the Body of Liberties, and that is going to prove to be true. Contained within the document are prohibitions and regulations that we hold dear today. The very first provision guarantees the right against arbitrary laws. In other words, if somebody is going to be punished for a crime, there must actually be a law against it. Nathaniel Ward, for good measure, includes that the laws can either be passed by the general court and recorded, or can be those laws promulgated by God. This means that under the body of liberties, biblical mandates are enforceable as law in Massachusetts. The body of liberties includes the notion that somebody must be given notice of the charges against them. This ensures that the person has a right to defend themselves. It is established that public meetings would be open to the public at large, and not just members of the general court. This is again significant, as in the future United States, the ideas of openness in government are going to become very important. Furthermore, an open government is less likely of becoming arbitrary in nature, so open meetings are a check on the threat of tyranny. There are provisions in the new law code for things such as bail. It includes that a person can have a person to represent them if they so choose. There is discussion throughout of concepts like jury trials, and failing that, at least establishing that a person being accused has the right to have their case heard through a trial. Regarding jury trials, it lays out the basic outline for what would become a process of jury selection. It mentions that both the plaintiff, defendant, and delinquent shall be given the right to challenge jurors as being unfair. This is something that we continue to hold near and dear in trials today, both in civil and criminal matters. There is a mechanism added for an appeal of a decision to a higher court, with the Court of Assistance appearing to act as a quasi-supreme court. The right to have a court proceeding recorded and maintained was given, something that is especially important if an appeal is being sought. There are provisions against the use of torture unless the person has been already found guilty and you need to get information out of them. In that case, torture is just fine so long as it doesn't become cruel, unusual, or inhumane. So the takeaway is that torture is fine in limited situations as long as it remains reined in. The code more specifically prohibits cruel and unusual punishment more directly. Not surprisingly, the death penalty was part of the legal system, however there were at least safeguards put in place to hopefully cut down on the risk of wrongful convictions and executions. The code lays out that if you are going to send someone to death, you're going to need two or three witnesses to testify against the person. If jury duty is something that you personally dread, you'll be interested to know that the people in the Bay Colony felt the exact same way, as a statute laid out that you could only be called for jury duty twice per year. An important point, the statute laid out that people coming into the colony, specifically, and I quote here, children, idiots, distracted people, 
all that are strangers or newcomers to our plantation shall have allowances and dispensations in any cause, whether criminal or other, as religion and reason requires. The statute is important as it acts specifically as a check against the government. It is the right of the people, citizen or not, to have their case granted basic due process rights. The government cannot deny due process simply because the person being charged doesn't check off all the correct boxes. Other provisions step in and protect the citizen from uncompensated takings. The government is not allowed to simply walk in and deprive a person of their property without getting due process of law. There are statutes that cover the basic parameters for running the government. There are provisions that address what happens to property following the death, either via a will or through intestate inheritance, should the person have died suddenly without a will already in place. There is a small amount of liberty granted to the women of the colony. They are protected from corporal punishment from their husbands, except in cases of self-defense by the man. Likewise, there is a protection in place to ensure that should the husband not make a grant of property to his wife, that following his death, she should at least be allowed to approach the general court to argue her case for having a distribution of land given to her. Even children are given some basic rights against their parents. For example, parents are not allowed to use unnatural severity towards their children. In the coming years, the code would be amended multiple times in respects to education. In 1642, a law was passed requiring parents to teach their kids to read, and then some years later, free public education was added to the code. This follows with the importance that Puritan societies placed on being able to personally read the Bible. Years in the future, that high literacy rate is going to mean that these citizens of Massachusetts are able to read the political pamphlets that are being circulated. Servants within the colony were also given basic protections against abusive behavior. Likewise, there was a section saying that indentured servants shall be given some kind of a grant of property should they successfully complete their period of indenture. It is interesting to look at the rights granted by the body of liberties. We see so many of the things that would later appear in the United States Bill of Rights appear for the first time in this document. Concepts such as protection against cruel and unusual behavior, due process, jury trials, prohibitions against uncompensated takings, all are going to make their appearance. These are things that are going to eventually find themselves front and center in those rights that the founders wanted to preserve in a federal constitution. While in so many ways, the body of liberties can seem like such a progressive document, there are other places where it feels radically different. None more so than just how closely religion is tied to the government. At the end of the body of liberties, there is a long section laying out the various reasons that you can use capital punishment, and each one of their biblical justifications. So, because you asked, what offenses can you receive the death penalty for? Well, you can be put to death for worshipping any god other than the Christian god, being a witch, which, you know, that's going to become very important in the 1690s, blasphemy, premeditated murder, committing murder as a crime of passion, committing murder with the use of poison, bestiality for both the person and the animal involved, homosexuality, stealing a slave, giving false witness that results in the death of another, or if anybody conspires to, or actually does, commit treason against the colony. I mention this because I think it really gets to the point, better than me just saying it, how incredibly steeped in religion the Bay Colony was in 1641. By any modern standard, and frankly by the standards 150 years later, this is a harsh form of government that absolutely nobody would mistake for an enlightened system of government. 
Despite that, however, it is at the same time unfair to completely dismiss the significance of the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. Portions of the legal code are going to survive the test of time until their inclusion in the Bill of Rights. For those laws, you can see the long legal history in America of these rights prior to the Bill of Rights. This helps explain why these rights were, by the time 1791 rolls around, seen as being so fundamental to the freedoms granted in the United States. Throughout the remainder of the 1640s, there would continue to be new laws added, modifications made, and other minor changes added to the body of liberties. The story of politics in Massachusetts throughout the 1640s was moving the colony to something that more resembled a stable system of government. By codifying the law, it, at least in theory, meant that there would be fair and equitable administration of the laws throughout the colony. It also served as a check on the threat of arbitrary government that the colonists were so deeply concerned with. The fear of arbitrary government would, in fact, never be completely mollified. It is a beast that will continue to rise up every so often until it literally leads to war in 1775. However, the body of liberties for the moment creates a more predictable government which was in turn less likely to drift towards tyranny. Meanwhile, throughout the decades, there will be increasing efforts to decentralize the government of the Bay Colony. In 1642, the General Court would separate into a bicameral institution with an upper and lower house. Under the new structure, the lower house would be voted on by the freemen of the colony. They would then proceed to elect the upper house of assistance. The lower house would meet less regularly, whereas the upper house of the assistants would remain in permanent session to assist the governor. If you're wondering what the English back in London thought of all this, the answer is that they probably didn't think about it much at all. For the colonists in Massachusetts, and indeed throughout New England, fortuitous timing helped them basically build their own government without much interference from the mother country. By the time the Body of Liberties was passed, Parliament and King Charles I were getting ready to kick off the First English Civil War. Nobody was terribly concerned with what a bunch of minor colonies off in the middle of nowhere were doing when there was such pressing problems at home. I want to wrap up today by taking a very quick peek in at Plymouth and seeing what is going on there politically. When we last left off, Plymouth was a colony that was completely dominated by the personality of William Bradford. Bradford, if you'll recall, is to Plymouth what John Winthrop is to Massachusetts. During those first decades in Plymouth, it is virtually impossible to separate Plymouth politics from Bradford. Bradford's control over the colony was still in place throughout the 1630s and 40s, so in this regard, he is still the giant on the ground. As a quick reminder, when Plymouth was formed, it was done so without a proper charter. Instead, the settlers on the Mayflower drafted the Mayflower Compact and had been operating with that as the foundation of their government and as the proof of legitimacy. However, with the Massachusetts Bay Colony now entering into the equation, Plymouth decided that it may well be time to make things a little bit more official. The Plymouth colonists approached the Council for New England in search of a more proper land grant. The Council for New England was an English company that did go ahead and make that grant in 1630. This shouldn't be seen as something akin to an actual charter, however, but rather was a more official acknowledgement that the Plymouth Colony did in fact have a right to exist. It did further establish borders for the Plymouth Colony, which would help to prevent future border disputes between Plymouth and Massachusetts. A more proper constitution and legal system was implemented in 1636, as opposed to the previously used Mayflower Compact. What emerges from this new constitution and legal code is a system of government that looks a whole lot like the system in place over Massachusetts. 
The new government provided for a governor as well as a court to be made up of seven assistants. Like in Massachusetts, the freemen of the colony had the right to vote for the assistants and the governor. Also, like in Massachusetts, in order to have a vote, those freemen were required to be a member of the church. Logistics would eventually prove that Plymouth, like Massachusetts, had to adopt a more representative system. As the Plymouth colony grew, more and more towns sprung up further and further away from the original settlement. Just like what occurred in the Bay Colony, this necessitated that each of these towns send two representatives to attend the general court meetings. This helped ensure that the surrounding towns had some form of representation when the distance between the towns and the original settlement grew too large to make attending the general court widely accessible. Through the use of representatives, it was much easier to ensure that towns on the edges of the colony received a fair voice in government. Plymouth would have contact and involvement with the other colonies around New England. As we have already seen, they were a participant in the Pequot War, though they didn't really do much in the way of any actual fighting. We will see in a future episode that they would also become a member of the New England Confederation in 1643. Plymouth, while not totally isolated or anything like that, was happy enough not being the center of the New England world. If John Winthrop was interested in turning Massachusetts into some kind of shining beacon of Puritan ways, the pilgrims in Plymouth just wanted to be left alone to do their own thing. For the most part, at least up until King Philip's War, which we will discuss next season, they got their wish. William Bradford himself is going to continue to dominate their political system right up until his death in 1657. As a final postscript on the situation regarding the legitimacy of Plymouth, I want to make a few points which may seem minor right now, but will be a big deal in the future. The land grant that Plymouth receives is absolutely not a charter. In fact, Plymouth is never going to get an official royal charter from the king. This is in contrast to the other New England colonies who, by 1686, had charters directly from England. When we reach the Dominion of New England at the end of the next season, this is going to be an important distinction that will separate Plymouth from the other New England colonies. The consequences of not having an official royal charter will ultimately prove catastrophic for the Plymouth colony, however that is all a story for next season. Okay, I think that should give you all a much better idea of what's been going on in Plymouth since the last time we saw them. While the far more impactful events were happening over in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the settlers down in Plymouth would just keep doing their thing with as little intrusion as possible. Next time, we are going to keep working through the political developments of the 1630s and 40s. Much like this week's episode, that is going to see us spend most of our time in a single place, namely Connecticut, where we are going to examine the importance of the fundamental order of Connecticut. We will also take a brief amount of time to jump on over to Rhode Island and see what all of our favorite outcasts are up to. So with that, I will see you all back here in two weeks as we dive into a document that has earned Connecticut the nickname of the Constitution State. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. <laughs>